Despite the fact that there are many moments in the life of Joseph that are very miraculous, he went through some very difficult circumstances to arrive as the ruler of Egypt. That's where we often think of him, is as a mighty, exalted ruler. He saved Egypt from famine. He really saved the known world at that time from famine. He was a mighty instrument of God, the interpreter of dreams. But he went through some very difficult things to become the tool of God that he did. And I want to read some of those circumstances this morning, and hopefully we can learn some lessons from him. And we're told in Genesis, the 37th chapter in the first verse, that Joseph dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. And these are the generations of Joseph. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and with the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a coat of many colors. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. So Jacob is the son of Israel who dwells as a stranger in the land of Canaan. That is to say, he is a worshiper of the supposed one true God and he is immersed in this land of heathens, of of idol worshippers. That's how he would have seen them at the time. But the Lord has blessed him to be prosperous. And he has this one son, which is the son of his old age. He had this son past the time when he would expect to have been having children. And it's the son of one of the women that he loved, not of these other servants or the other wife that he was essentially tricked into marrying, but Rachel. For this reason, he loved Joseph. But Joseph, the other thing about Joseph is he was worthy of his father's love. From what we read here, he was a very diligent son. He's out with his brethren, shepherding his father's flocks. And he returns to them and he gives his father the report of what his brothers have been up to. Now, Joseph was not a tattletale. He didn't come back. He wasn't tattling on his brothers saying, well, they've been doing this. They haven't been doing their job. No, I don't believe that was the case. But when we go through the rest of Genesis and we read about some of his brothers' extracurricular activities and the things that they did on the weekends, they were not savory characters. I'm sure Joseph had quite some stories to tell to his father. I'm sure he came to him in the tent one day and he said, Father, we were down there watching the sheep and you were never going to believe what my brothers were doing in this land of the idol worshipers. And so his father takes that into account. And I believe not only because Joseph was the son of his father's old age, but also because he was just a diligent man of integrity. His father loved him. And he gave to him a coat of many colors. Now that's not some kind of rainbow jacket. I'm not trying to be sacrilegious. I know that may seem a little bit sacrilegious, especially in this day and time. But it wasn't some kind of like gaudy, ridiculous looking rainbow jacket, as I said before. No, this is a robe which distinguished him as the son of a great man. The son of a lord of of Canaan. And so it was no doubt a garment of many layers. We're told elsewhere that garments like this often had long sleeves. We read about the children of kings would put these robes on and it would distinguish them from the other people as the son or daughter of a great man. But his brethren saw this 
They saw his diligence. They saw his integrity. They saw how his father had rewarded his diligence, and they just didn't like it. They were jealous. But I would submit to you this morning that none of them were really worthy of the responsibility that Jacob gave to Joseph. They were philanderers. They were drunken people. They were murderers, we read about. They were, in some ways, very bad people. Now, the Lord used them in a mighty way. Thank God. As a larger picture of the fact that He can take anyone, regardless of who they are, or regardless of what they've done, and He can perform His work through them. And Joseph was the same way. Because he was a man of great integrity and character, but his brothers did not treat him in a very God-honoring way. So after Joseph delivers this report to his father of his brothers, we're told that he dreamed a dream. And he dreams this dream and he tells his brothers in verse 7, For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And lo, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves stood round about and made obeisance to my sheaf. And his brethren said unto him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us? Or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. And Joseph dreamed another dream, and he also told this to his brethren. And the dream was that he beheld the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And he told it to his father and his brethren. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow ourselves to thee to the earth? And his brethren envied him, but his father observed the saying. So Joseph has this dream. And regardless of what we think about him telling the dream to his brothers, these two dreams indicated to him that he would one day rule over his brethren. Now this would be, as I'm sure y'all were thinking ahead of me and y'all already know this, that this would be an accurate dream. There would come a time where Joseph would be the ruler of Egypt, one of the most powerful men of the land, receiving his commands only from the Pharaoh. And his brothers would come to him asking for food. They wouldn't know who he was, but they would come to him and they would bow before him and they would say, you know, mighty ruler of Egypt, our people are starving. There's no food in the lands from whence we come. Take of the food that you've stored up in these last years and please give, a, give some of it to us. So at this time, the dream was fulfilled. But Joseph, in making this accurate you know, interpretation of the future, this dream given to him from God, um, you know, garners his brother's hatred. They don't like it. And his father expresses this. He says, would you really tell us about this dream? How you're going to come rule over us one day? And because of this, they conspire against him. In the following verses, we read how Joseph goes out to look upon his father's flocks. And his brothers see him coming. And they say, oh, here comes that dreamer. Here comes that guy. The dude who told us he was going to rule over us. And they take him and they plan on killing him. But of course, they don't kill him. They throw him in a pit. And eventually he's sold into slavery. And we'll come back and look at some of that. But see, Jacob, uh, the story of Joseph is not just a story of a young man who fell into a series of difficult circumstances and through his willpower and his integrity and his self-discipline and character, he overcame those difficulties and, you know, and, and rose to the top. 
It's a story of God's grace and it's a story of God's goodness to a man who, like any of us, was completely undeserving of God's mercy. And in a larger sense, it is a depiction of a lot of the circumstances surrounding the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to get into a few of those here this morning because we understand that Jesus was a stranger to the world. He came down and He walked. Um, he took upon Himself the form of a servant. He was made in the likeness of men. And He came down and He walked upon this earth. But when He told people who He was, when He told people the position of authority that He held, the people hated Him. Some of the most tense and volatile moments of Jesus' ministry was when He proclaimed to the people around Him, I'm one with the Father. When people asked Him who He was, He did not make any qualms about what He had been sent to do or who He was. He said, I and the Father are one. He's essentially telling them, I am the Messiah. You may look for another. You may look around you to see a man who comes wielding a sword and a rod of iron to drive the Romans out of our land. But He said, I am that Messiah. I may not look like it to you. We're told that Jesus did not take the appearance of just the, the rod of iron that they were expecting for Him to. He came down as a carpenter and He walked upon the earth, sweat stained with calluses upon His body from hard work, and yet He told them, I'm the one that you have sought for generations. I am the one who will fulfill the promises. And God testified of Him and He said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He, Jesus Christ was worthy of His Father's love. In the same situation, you know, Israel had other sons. God the Father has many other sons. Thank goodness for His, for his mercy and His grace. We're told that Christ is the firstborn among a few brethren or some brethren. No, many brethren. So we know that God has many other sons. Many other sons and daughters. But Jesus Christ, as the firstborn of His sons, is the most worthy of both His and our adoration. Amen. He is the one who, regardless of the difficult circumstances that He found Himself in, effectually and perfectly fulfilled the will of the Father. He went out amongst His brethren who portrayed Him, who spit upon Him and reviled Him for who He said He was, and what He said He came to do. But regardless of that, He said, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of Him that sent Me. And the will of Him that sent Jesus Christ was that of all that the Father had given Him, He should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And so, in, in a similar way, Joseph's brothers take him and they throw him into a pit. And then they sell him into slavery for 20 pieces of silver. Christ was also sold. I'll make this point in passing. It's reasonable to see that Joseph would have been sold for 20 pieces of silver because he's no doubt just in his late teens. We're told he's 17. He could be 18 or 19 by the time that the rest of these events transpired. But he's not fully grown. He's not reached his full, his full muscular potential yet. He's just, a, he's just in his late teens. And so he's sold for less than the price of a full-grown slave. He's still sold for the price of a slave. 
just as Christ was. He was valueless. The brothers just wanted him out of the equation because they hated him. And they were just going to kill him. They said, wait, Reuben says, we don't need to kill him. We just sell him into slavery. We'll give him over to these other people. Did not the Jews do the same thing? They took the Lord Jesus Christ and they said, well, first of all, throughout his ministry, they said, we'll kill him. But then they decided, no, what if the people rise up against us? If we take this prophet, this man that has walked about Israel for some years and he has healed all these people, he has ministered to all these people. He has been an incredible influence upon our land. If we take him and kill him, the people will rise up against us and take away our political influence. So guess what they did? They handed him over to the Romans and they said, we'll let you all take care of it. If we can't do it, we'll just give you over to the leading political authority of the day and they'll take care of it. And yes, they did take care of it. And because they were so powerful, nobody said anything. In fact, a lot of the people engaged in his murder. And so, but, at, but since they killed him, they have to come up with some sort of or since they sold him into slavery and they were planning on killing him, they have to come up with some sort of lie to explain his disappearance to his father. And here's where I want to spend the rest of our time, Lord willing. We're told in verse 31 of Genesis chapter 37 that they took Joseph's coat and they killed a kid of the goats and dipped the coat in the blood. And they sent the coat of many colors And they brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Know now whether it be thy son's coat or no. And he knew it and said, It is my son's coat. An evil beast had devoured him. Joseph is without doubt rent in pieces. And Jacob rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his loins and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And said, For I will go down into the grave unto my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. And the Midianites sold him into Egypt unto Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh's and captain of the guard. So the brothers decide, we have to hide the fact that we have sold Joseph into slavery. And so they take his coat, which they had earlier stripped him of, the thing which... Um, Jacob gave to Joseph as a sign of, of his love for him, as a symbol of his love. And they tore it, and they dipped it in blood, and they took it to Jacob. And they said, you know, this is what we found. We don't know if he was walking there or if he was headed, or if he somehow got confused upon the way, but no doubt a wild animal has fallen upon him. This seems to be, is this his coat? Is this the, the coat that you gave him? And Jacob says, Oh, it's my coat. It is his coat. It's the coat that I gave him, a symbol of my love. And no doubt, he has been torn to pieces by some wild animal. His coat is torn. It's covered in blood. He's dead. He's just dead. And so he went into mourning. And he rent his garments. And he put sackcloth upon his loins and he began to mourn for his son. And all of his sons and daughters rose up to comfort him, but he just refused. He was just so cast down and so sorrowful that his son had seemed to be killed that he said, I will go to my grave mourning my son's death. There's nothing that you can do to comfort me. 
Joseph was was presumed dead. He's been he's been devoured by a wild beast. But little did Jacob know that that was not what the Lord was going to allow to happen to Joseph. He was going to bless him with the power to interpret dreams. He was going to bless him with his favor. And he would rise throughout the ranks. And he would one day become his very brethren's salvation. Not their eternal salvation, but he would save them from famine and from death, from starvation. Now, if you looked at Jesus Christ upon the cross, what do you think he would have seen? Would we have seen some kind of historic and miraculous victory that day? I'll tell you this morning, we wouldn't have. His garments were taken from Him. A crown of thorns was placed upon His head. He was beaten over and over and over. A mocking sign was held over His head and He was told, if you're really the King of the Jews, if you're really who you say you are, you'll take yourself down from that cross People walking by told him this. The thieves that hung upon his right and his left told him the same thing. They said, if you're really the Son of God, get yourself down from this cross and get us off of this cross. But he just hung there. Blood staining his body. His body had been beaten and torn. He was no doubt dehydrated. He was reviled. He was shamed. His visage was marred beyond that of any man. His form was marred beyond the sons of men. He was despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And if we had been there, we no doubt would have turned our faces away from that scene. Because it was so horrific. But I tell you this morning, that although that scene may have seemed to be one of defeat, and His followers may have ran, And His disciples may have deserted Him. And the only people there were the mockers who stood by and cast His weakness in His teeth. That was a great victory. Amen. The scene that we see is as Joseph's brethren bring back a rent coat and they say, Father, is this your son's coat? And He says, Oh, it's my son's. He's been rendered by a wild beast. That was not a defeat. That was the salvation of Joseph's family. And on that day when the Son of Man hung upon the cross and bled and died for His elect people, and the sun refused to shine, and the land went dark in the very moment of His death, And he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That may have seemed to have been like a defeat. But that is the very moment, that is the time that we can look upon. It infuses our life with meaning and with hope. And it was his death, his supposed defeat, that brought salvation to his elect people. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. We'll read a few verses in closing. I think shed some some light upon the true impact of this supposed defeat. Remember the vision we see of, of Jacob. He's in mourning. He's in ashes. He's lost all hope of his sons of, of his, for his son's life. He has assumed that he is dead. 
We ought never to be found in the same position as Jacob. It doesn't matter what your circumstance may be. Um, it, It doesn't matter sometimes the pain that often brings us to our knees. The cross brings us hope this morning. The resurrection of Christ brings us hope. He's not presumed to be dead. We see a group of men on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, which despaired of Christ's resurrection. They said, oh, we thought it was Him. We heard Him speak. We heard what He taught. We saw the miracles. But He's been taken and He's been crucified and now He's dead and we don't have anything left. And as they were in the midst of that conversation, a man walks up to them and he engages them in conversation and he begins to expound the law and the Gospel to them. And little did they know that it was Jesus Christ. They had come before Joseph asking for food and they didn't know it was Him. Because they thought he was dead. But yet he had come back from the the seeming grave itself to be their salvation. When we understand this, we can read 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, beginning in verse 12, and understand now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? For there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ. Who He raised not up, and so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is Christ not raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, you are yet in your sins. Then they also, which are fallen asleep in Christ, are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Paul says to the Corinthian church, he says, if you truly believe that Christ did not come back from the dead, your loved ones will never be resurrected. My preaching is vain. Your faith is vain. God is a liar and we have no hope in this life. But if you can stand upon the facts of the Word of God and a belief by faith that Christ truly resurrected Himself, God resurrected Him from the dead, our life becomes infused with meaning and hope. We gain that picture as we examine the life of Joseph. We examine... Jacob's response to the presumed death of his beloved son. And we see that we don't have to clothe ourselves in sackcloth and ashes because Christ is risen this morning. This is not an Easter message. As the brother said, you know, I hope for the disciple of Christ every day is Father's Day. You know, in an earthly way, if every day is Father's Day, for, for the children, maybe the young people of this church, You know, honoring your Father in Heaven begins by honoring your earthly father. So every day becomes Father's Day. And I say every day is Easter this morning. Every day is a day to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ because it is that which gives us hope. Thankful for your time this morning.